Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Varying Viewpoints. My name is Naomi Simmons-Thorne. I am a John Smart Summer Scholar Intern at the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions and the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. Here recording with me today is my fellow John Smart Summer Scholar, Latrice Johnson. Latrice, can you say hello to our listeners? Hi, everyone. And joining Latrice and I today is Jonathan Wesley, a PhD candidate in educational policy studies and interdisciplinary practivist, which is Jonathan's portmanteau for practitioner, academic, artist, activist. Jonathan, can you say hello to our audience? Hey, everybody. Thank you so much. And so Jonathan Wesley is a scholar of higher education, born in Newark, New Jersey, and was raised as a product of the heavily impoverished New New Jersey inner city. Jonathan credits the arts and also faith spaces for saving him from the worst of what the inner city had to offer. The intersecting identities and struggles of his life would provoke him to pursue higher education. And Jonathan now holds a bachelor's in sociology, a master's degree in education, religion, and public life, graduate certificates in pastoral care, counseling, and leadership, and he is currently completing his dissertation for his PhD in educational policy studies, which focuses on the lived experiences of LGBTQIA plus faculty and administrators at historically Black colleges and universities. So Jonathan has a very rich academic background, and we're excited for him to be here with us today so we can dive into some of his work and what his work means for higher education more broadly. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think we'd like to kick off our podcast by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, your creative outlets, and um, your academic background that led you to the work that you're doing now. Sure. Well, again, good day to everybody. Good day, good afternoon, good evening. Um, I'm Jonathan Wesley. I identify as queer in every way. Um, and my gender pronouns are as fluid as I am. Um, as mentioned, I'm from Jersey, I'm from Newark, I'm from the inner city, and I was uh, raised in Newark and in Irvington, New Jersey. So I call myself a northerner that has been southernized because I left Jersey to uh, pursue my uh, undergraduate and graduate education in the South. I went to South Carolina, so I left uh, Jersey 727 miles away from my home in order to get a different sense of life. I'm a first-gen college student, and that was a very scary experience. But what I recall during the summer of 2007, I was going to go to Essex County College because I felt like I had any other options. You know, Rutgers was a thought, but per my high school, there wasn't as much time to really focus people on college careers. It was just like, let's make sure that we get you out, that you graduate. Now, I was a good mm-hmm. student. Let me put that out there, right? So, but per the structure of the, the city and the socioeconomic status, et cetera, that was just my truth. Nevertheless, when Spirit spoke to me in uh, July of 2007 and spoke to me very clearly and said, if you do not leave this place, you will surely die. I didn't know what that meant. But what I did know is that with my trust in Spirit, Spirit has never led me astray. Mm -hmm. So I followed that and I left. I mean, I left. (laughs) I was gone. And so um, here we are 13 years later where I've been in the American South and the Southeast. Um, This year I am planning to relocate from the Southeast. Nevertheless, that's how I got down here. Um, And since then, I've pursued all of my education from my bachelor's to my two master's degrees to my graduate certificates and wrapping up this PhD, and I'm so glad to say that I'm wrapping up. We are definitely, I'm going to be sad to to um, to um have you leaving us, Jonathan. I don't know if you realize this, but one of the things that endears me to you is actually our South Carolina connection. Um, I moved to South Carolina in the seventh grade, and I've been here ever since. Um, and I'm currently at the University of South Carolina. And Jonathan also has some experiences um, both at Claflin and also Columbia College, I believe, as well. Yep, yep. And I, I worked at USC as well. Like that was my that was my last job prior to moving from South Carolina to come to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I now I did tell Spirit. I say now if if an opportunity that makes sense opens up 
in South Carolina, I would go back to South Carolina because I actually enjoyed South Carolina because I feel like there were a lot of authentic people that I met in South Carolina in comparison to my experience in Atlanta, Georgia thus far, right? Um, and I had more of a community of support. At least that was just per, per my experience. Jonathan said something that I thought was really apropos the first time he recorded about the influences of um, the notorious principal Joe Clark from Eastside High School and Joe Clark's, who also recently passed, influences on him in um, the way that he thinks about education. So, Jonathan, I wanted to give you a chance just to revisit that before we get started. Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, when I left Jersey, I wanted to I went to Claflin University to pursue music education because I wanted to come back to Irvington and teach music. That's just kind of what my desire was. It was like since I didn't get accepted to Juilliard, then okay, well, I didn't. I was. It was my thought to apply to Juilliard. Let me put that out there. But I did not think I was going to be qualified enough to get in. So I never actually submitted an application. That's a whole nother conversation. Nevertheless, Claflin provided a space as an HBCU where I feel like I can go and I can be. And again, it was from the context of Joe Clark from Lean on Me is one of my favorite movies. You know, when, when I think about that song, you know, some times in our lives, we all have pain. You know, when I, when, when you sit with the words of that right. and I think about the lived experiences of the inner city people that we sit in so much pain, being impoverished, not having the educational resources, et cetera. I wanted to be like Joe Clark without chaining the doors to <laughs> provide a safety net so that the, the kids in these inner cities can know, baby, you can get out of here. Okay. Like they're, the possibility of life goes beyond here, but who is going to stir the system and turn the world upside down in a way that's not about the politics of respectability, but it's from this place of we need to do what's right for our youth, right? And, and how do we do that? So anyway, that was that was my desire. And so as an educator, I still embody a lot of that, what I deem to be activism that that was displayed in the movie Lean on Me. Like that has really resonated with me throughout my life. And I mean, it's still something that I, I carry with me today. Absolutely. And I think all of us um, have very complicated legacies that we draw from to um, to do the work that, that we are doing um, at the moment. So I totally understand that as well. And um, I'm gonna send, um, kick it over to Latrice actually, who is going to um, start off our round of questions for Jonathan. So we're really excited to hear what you have to say. Yes. So just to begin with our first question, Jonathan, can you tell us a bit more about your dissertation and kind of give us an overview of LGBTQIA plus student affairs at HBCUs, which are historically black colleges and universities? Yes. Yeah, so, we. So as mentioned, <laughs> I'm a product of the HBCU. I have worked at several. And when I was um, pursuing my, my doctorate, so I guess let me bring this kind of around to an extent. I actually started a doctorate of education uh, degree seven years ago, okay? But let me give you the quick timeline. Seven years ago, because I said to myself, I wanted to have my doctorate by 28, and I was on track. In July of 2014, my mother took ill. She had a sinus infection that turned into double bacterial pneumonia that turned into acute respiratory distress. And within two months, she died. My mom passed on September 10th, 2014. And my 25th birthday was September 12th, mm -hmm. 2014. Oh, wow. I spent my birthday um, planning my mother's funeral. And I actually performed her eulogy. Hardest wow. thing I Wow. Um, nevertheless, even when I went into my doctoral program, I was at a different institution at that time. I knew that spirit was leading me to do research around the LGBTQ community. I've been out since I was a teenager. And so in every space that I'm in, I disrupted because people don't always understand. Well, how can you be queer and a preacher? Like that just doesn't, that's not right. 
And I had, I, you know, I try to help them understand it's not about what you think is right. This is, you know, what God has done. So you, you may have to take that up with God, you know, not with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, when I, I did that, nevertheless, I, when my mom passed, Spirit spoke to me, which is why I left the University of South Carolina. I was given two instructions. So my mom passed in September. My godmother passed in November. I buried them literally 60 days apart on the 19th of September and 19th of November, along with some other stuff that was happening. Nevertheless, in December of 2014, I asked Spirit, what is it that you will have me to do? And I got two instructions. One was to write my book, finish writing the book that I started in undergrad. And the second one was to go to seminary. Now, I was like, look, I'll write the book. I'm not going to no seminary. Like, I'm, not, I'm not doing it. I'm not moving to Atlanta. I'm just not doing that. And no and behold, fast forward 2015, I ended up coming to Atlanta to pursue my, my master's um, of religion at Emory. And so even while there, I was still trying to discern, how do I wrap all of this together when I go back from my doctorate in whatever ways that manifests? So I started as a PhD in sociology at Georgia State. And then I had a breakdown the fall semester, the spring semester of 2018. And um, I, I got back up. Was I got clarity that I was just in the wrong program. So when I switched to ed policy, I, by that time, I was very clear, this is what I need to be doing, which is studying the lived experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer faculty and administrators. And I know from working at an HBCU how difficult that is to be openly queer and have people ostracize you as a um, employee, right? It's like there's, there's not a, a great sense of protection. Nevertheless, what I knew and what I still know as I've engaged in this research and I'm wrapping it up. So September 10th of this year, 2021, I will be defending my dissertation. So I used the date that my mom passed to change it from just being bitter to being bittersweet. So I'm actually looking okay. forward to September 10th of this year. But as it relates to the topic at hand, the HBCUs are an extension of the Black church, right? Right. So when we think about that, when we contextualize that, because faith and church has been a major part of the African experience, her slavery, et cetera, from this uh, colonized perspective, then, you know, here we are. So there's a lot of this inundation of doctrine. And in the doctrine, more respectively within the Abrahamic religions, there's this strong stance that, you know, queer people are wrong and hellbound and all this other stuff that's just wrong, right? Um, so in doing this work, my hope and my prayer was that is that it will shift HBCUs to think about how they are treating God's children that are within their respective house, right? So I'm not, my study is about the intra-racial tensions. I'm not centering mm. whiteness at all because we have to think critically about agency. And if people are, are individuals of faith, God gives agency. It has nothing to do with the race of a person. So if in our agency, if people don't feel like they have agency because the system and the structure, the people who are upholding the systems and structures are being oppressive, that is a conversation that needs to be had. But then how do you have a conversation like that when there's fear around, well, if I speak up, there's going to be backlash, which is similar to the Black church in many instances, where if an individual challenges the thoughts of the pastor or whomever, right, those, those leaders are, then it's like, oh, well, you challenge me and we're going to ostracize you um, because we don't like conflict or we don't. Sometimes it's too, don't know how to how to just say, hey, I don't know how to deal with that and ask people along to help teach them so that our institutions can become more culturally competent and responsive. Right. Um, so that's what my work is centered around. I'm, I'm, my title, the title of my work is Lift Every Voice and Sing, an intersectional qualitative examination of the lived experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual faculty and administrators at HBCUs. I use lift every voice and sing intentionally because again, this these are the intraracial tensions. When we say lift every voice and sing, 
there is something to be said when our queer siblings are not able to lift their voice and sing the same song of liberation as our heterosexual counterparts, right? So what does it mean for us to really lift every voice? How do we make this not just a song? Yes, it's it's about freedom. It's about the liberation. But liberation for who? Because we aren't just Black people. We are intersectional beings, right? So intersectionality is my theoretical framework. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, thank you, right? So when I'm thinking about these things, these are the ideas that I'm troubling in my work. So it's intersectional. It is interdisciplinary uh, because I'm talking about religion, talking about education, sociology. I'm including all these factors into my work. And the way that it will be presented in my dissertation, per my artistic background, is through an ethnodrama. So I have written a play um, because my hope is that once this work is done in less than 60 days, that I can put this into popular culture. Like people may never read my dissertation, right? But what, what, when we talk about impact, more people will watch something on the screen, like on a docu-series, potentially than reading my dissertation. So that's, that's what I'm, I'm talking about, about doing in my work. And I want to name, it's not just centered around the student affairs um, folks. It's, it's about the institution as a whole who's occupy roles of uh, faculty, staff, or, and or administrators. And what I mean by that in my work is those who sit at a director level or higher. So director, assistant director, associate director, dean, those various categories and up. And full-time um, faculty, those who have worked at HBCUs or currently work at HBCUs. And I know I said a lot, so I'm going <laughs> No, thank you, Jonathan, so much. For, and also, thank you for expanding um, this conversation beyond just student affairs, because that is where this conversation tends to bear. So I really do um, appreciate you opening the conversation up to also address administrators, faculty, and staff as well. Um, and so really quickly, um, I know you mentioned um, Dr. Mary Beth Gassman, um, Dr. Steve Mobley, and some other folks who informed your perspective on higher education and historically Black colleges and universities. I was also just curious um, if you can just tell us a little bit about some of the scholars and other practitioners um, who have um, influenced and change your perspectives on um, the theological side, because I know theology is a, a very core component of your work as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So James Cone has been uh, amazing. Um, Carlton Pearson has been amazing. Bishop Yvette Flunder um, has been amazing. When I was in seminary at Emory, Dr. Robert Franklin, uh, who was the former president of Morehouse, um, and Dr. Karen Scheib, like my, my professors there, really helped to shape uh, more of my theology so that it's, it's more informed and causes it caused me to think a lot more critically about the faith and about inclusion and, and what does that really mean, inclusion and belonging. So, you know, those are the folks that I really pull from, um, as well as my lived experiences with other faith uh, practitioners and faith leaders across this country. So those individuals, from a theological perspective, have really um, helped me over the years. So thank you for that. Thank you for expanding on your topic um, and on your own influences. And so as you mentioned, some of the challenges um, and the gaps in the literature that you were particularly focused on, focusing on with faculty what challenges have you noticed um, LGBTQ faculty experiencing at their institution, so at these HBCUs? And then despite these challenges, what motivates them to stay? Yeah, so some of the challenges that I've <clears throat> heard from faculty, if they are not tenured, they do not feel comfortable um, sharing what their sexuality is because of a fear of, of backlash or not receiving mm -hmm. tenure because of discrimination. Um, while they do have academic freedom and they do teach within their respective disciplines, it's the balancing act of what will be too much because I don't want to get reported right. based off of what I am teaching in, in the class. 
Um, and in in some cases, it's been they don't want students or the other campus community to know what their sexuality is because it's like I'm coming here to do a job, and that's it. you know so i'm i'm teaching i'm engaged in my scholarship and research and and that's it so building the community is what i have found in my studies to be a struggle amongst um faculty it's like faculty can be very isolated within their respective discipline and then you know based on whatever other dynamics of the institution are there will determine how they engage with, with said persons. Um, there are, as I've seen in my work as well, this kind of concern around, well, if I was to bring my partner to this space, to a, a department gathering, a Christmas social, or even to the institution at large, what backlash could that potentially have you know, on them? Um, and people asking questions, et cetera, et cetera. Now that's, again, just, just with some. I'll say what keeps them at these institutions is their commitment to making change in whatever ways that that they feel like they can. And that goes back to the agency piece that I mentioned earlier. Um, And when we talk about institutional dynamics, it's like, well, as these Black individuals are working at these HBCUs, they're just like, well, hey, you know, I can deal with the homophobia. This, a lot of them are able to deal more so with the homophobia than the racism being mm-hmm. at a white institution. So it's like, if I have to take the, the lesser of the two evils, here's my choice <laughs> of, of being here, um, it, which I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's right. That's just what has come up. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's what I have seen as um, some of the major challenges, the overarching themes and again, what keeps them there are are the students and the work that they do, being there, being present. And for those who have shared what their sexuality is, it's helped with their students who feel comfortable enough to share with them who they are, and that builds continued mentorship. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I wanted to actually ask you this question because I read two biographies recently that I think um, speaks a little bit to some of the issues and concerns that you're putting on the table right now. And so one of those um, biographies is Jeff, the historian Jeffrey Stewart's biography of um, Elaine Locke, um, the Black philosopher, um, Harlem Renaissance founder, and also um, Rosalind Rosenberg, another historian, her biography of Polly Murray. Um, the transgender um, legal scholar and academic, both of them had um, experiences as um, at HBCUs, um, Elaine Locke at Howard as faculty, and also Polly Murray at Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina, as vice president of I want to say curriculum and instruction, um, but somewhere in administration and. Elena Locke was in um, faculty. And so I'm thinking a little bit historically about the experiences of um, Black LGBTQ folks in HBCUs as faculty, as administrators. And in both of these biographies, we do see um, we do see um, indications of some kinds of struggles. Um, Polly Murray stayed at their position at Benedict for only a year. Um, and Elaine Locke also had um, some high-profile um, tumultuous situations that occurred during their time as well um, at Howard. So I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about some of the historical trajectory of this and um, are there any specific um, LGBTQ figures whose um, life or story that you find um, really indicative of some of these issues that you've been bringing up? Yeah, so I'm glad that you mentioned um, Elaine Locke, and I've named several folks in my dissertation, those who have worked at HBCUs or graduated from HBCUs who, who identify as, as queer. Um, one of the, the people that I did name was Lucy Diggs Slow, one of the founding members of Alpha, Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Uh, I'm a member of Kappa Alpha Psi, so I was going to give a little extra homage (laughs) to our G9. But 
when she was the first dean, the first female dean, right? Like in 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 higher education. And she was a lesbian woman, right? So the president at that time led uh, a, a hunt out to get her terminated because, you know, she was with her partner. And that is just like, okay, look, she's doing great work. She's setting, I mean, making, literally making history, but you and some of the board members are so disgusted with her being a lesbian that you are leading a revolt to get her removed from the institution. Like, you know, when we, when we take time, like, let's, let's think about that for a second. How do you all gather to conspire against somebody because of their sexuality and think that it's okay. And, and, and think that it's okay under the guy, under the guise of religion, under Christianity, to be more specific, like, how, how is that okay? What what happened to, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself? But then this is what we have to think about when there are these, these uh, discriminatory practices that have historically happened at HBCUs, which has caused a culture of don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we really have to think about those people who are upholding those structures and being able to to challenge them, right? So. Lucy, she didn't quit. So when I think about somebody like her, like, and I named this in my in my dissertation work, I'm standing in solidarity and spirit with all of my queer ancestors who have lived and who have done work whose stories were never documented, right? Whose voices were never lifted because of a deliberate erasure, because there was some ideology that if you're queer, then it's sustained on the black race which is a whole nother problem within itself. Nevertheless, I name her as well. And I also name Dr. Mobley. And I named Dr. Mobley because as I am a, a millennial and reading his work in the provocative nature of his work, like that, that no pumps allowed. Oh, bless me. Okay. I was like, yes, nobody's talking about <laughs> somebody is, is, is taking the chance to be prophetic enough to speak truth to power about these inequities that exist within HBCU. So, and, and, and again, also just really quickly for the audience, um, what Jonathan is referencing is the um, article by Mowgli and Johnson, um, No Pumps Allowed, uh, The Problem with Gender Expression and the Morehouse College Appropriate Attire Policy, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was published in like the Journal of Homosexuality a couple of years back, like two or three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you for that. So, I mean, it, but I, I name him because he has really been intentionally doing this work. Not just him, you know what I'm saying? But he's, you know, like one of the main pioneers in this as it relates to the LGBTQ plus student experience at HBCUs. So as you talk about the historical nature, as I continue to, to note this, and, and we can see this if if individuals watch um, Black Church, I believe it was a docu-series that mm-hmm. came out in February of 2021. And what was very disheartening in all of the historical facts that they were sharing in about a two hour, I think maybe about two hours and some change documentary, there was probably only about five to seven minutes that was allocated to the LGBTQ plus community, right? And they brought Bishop Yvette Flunder to specifically speak to that. And when she spoke to it, it started off with the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic. And that, so this, when we talk about the, the historical nature, we have to search a lot of the archives where we can find them because there has been this deliberate attempt to minimize, to marginalize, to erase the intersecting identities of these Black people who have worked at HBCUs or who have who are alumni of HBCUs because individuals don't want to wrestle with the fact that, you yes, but being Black and queer is fine. 
being black, queer, and believing in faith is fine. Like, but when those individuals who are in power don't believe that narrative to be so, again, there's just been this deliberate erasure of their histories and the fullness of their histories so that we can be more informed, right, about the the true richness of the diversity within HBCUs over the years. Thank you for that. Um, I think this actually takes us into a great segue into our next question. So as we're thinking of kind of the conservative nature, quote unquote, traditional nature of HBCUs and their um, resemblances to the black church, um, going back to faculty retention. So faculty, you mentioned um, backlash. So a reason, one of those challenges for uh, faculty experiences at HBCUs. So is LGBTQ plus faculty retention a cause of concern at HBCUs today? Um, so we've gotten through the historical um, timeline of what we've seen, but today is it still a, a cause for concern at HBCUs, faculty retention? And to what extent is it a concern? Yes, it is a concern. And it's, it's faculty, staff, and administrators. And, right, right. And, I, and I say that I want to make sure I include because, you know, I think about Luther Vandross, um, a house is not a home. You know, mm-hmm. a chair is still a chair if ain't nobody sitting there. Like, so the HBCUs is there, there is this house component, this sense of community that should be there. However, some faculty, depending on their age, right, are okay with that because that's how they grew up as the newer generations continue to come especially these students right mm-hmm. you know, challenging like look i'm not gonna pay you to oppress me not at this hbcu i can leave and go over here to this other school that has lgbtqia resources that got students of, of color you know all these affinity groups etc i'm gonna go over there and be great and they end up leaving and being great right Right. Because HBCUs lose really good talent um, of individuals who are not willing to conform to the politics of respectability. Mm-hmm. Now, there are there are multi multi layers to this, right? So when when I'm naming that, uh Higginbotham talks about the politics of respectability, which was birthed out of the black Baptist church uh, by women. And that that was to counter uh, what white people thought about black people. So it's how do you be a respectable black person? You have to dress well. You have to speak well. When you think about the Cosbys, okay, they will be deemed a respectable black family. The way I, I trouble this is those same politics of respectability uh, are what's inundated within HBCUs because if a person can pass, and what I mean by pass is if they, if, if they're, I'll use their gender identity, for example. If their gender identity is respectable in a way that it doesn't push the norms too much. Um, so having a gender non-conforming um, person on faculty or staff at an HBCU typically will not land them in upper level roles because in, in HBCU's eyes, and some of them, it's not all, let me, let me again say that, um, some of the administration is like, well, no, because you need to present yourself this way. Mm-hmm. And if you are a male, quote, then you need to wear a suit or tie because that's how men are supposed to dress. If you are female, then you should wear a dress and look, you know, feminine, wear makeup and do all this, these other things that are, are these social norms. And so as a result of that, when we look at the retention of these individuals, they they want to retain. But what's coming up now is like folks are saying, look, if you're going to interview me and if you're going to hire me, if you're going to retain me, then you need to respect me. And if that respect is not going to happen because the culture is not supportive of the queer community, then folks are, are going to leave uh, right. and have left. Um, but again, it's based on an individual's level of comfort within mm-hmm. those places and what they are willing to negotiate in order to navigate their careers, right? So for some of them, the, the negotiation is, I'm here so that I can get tenure. That's that's my goal. Let me stay focused on getting tenure. And once I get tenure, 
Then I'll go and do and say all that I need to say. Right. <laughs> until such time, let me just kind of remain a base in certain cases. For the administrators, on the other hand, who don't have tenure, there's a different type of fear um, about their retention. Because like, if you do something, uh, you know, it, it gets out or whatever, mm-hmm. then it's their job, you know, um, especially as it relates to queerness, unless they can keep it, quote unquote, under wraps um, so that it doesn't bring uh, any type of disdain to the institution, which, again, I find to be very problematic. Really quickly, before we actually transition to the next question, Jonathan, you brought up um, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham's work on respectability politics. And just for people who are listening, I always like to make sure that I cite scholars and books just in case you wanted to backtrack and pick up on some of these um, works that are being introduced in the course of the conversation. So um, in Higginbotham's book, Righteous Discontent, Um, She coins and talks about the topic of respectability politics, and you um, kind of addressed how respectability politics um, as the HBCUs often mirrors and resembles um, Black churches, how the respectability politics from the church also transferred over to the university context. And one of the things that you said was about passing, and that was, I think, a really good point that you brought up, and it made me think again about um, Polly Murray, who we already talked about um, a little bit on this um, podcast so far. And Polly Murray, once again, for folks, um, acted as the vice president for Wednesday Curriculum and Development for Benedict College at, in Columbia, South Carolina, for a single year between 1966 and 1967, I want to say, somewhere around that time. And I have a really good historian friend named Megan Kane, and um, Megan is familiar with my work on Pauli Murray, and she um, is a professor at Benedict College and in going through the college's archives, was able to find this picture of Pauli Murray um, during their time at Benedict College. And if you know anything about Pauli Murray, Pauli Murray had a very sharp preference for masculine attire, um, preferred to wear masculine clothing. Um, and while at Benedict, of course, um, and in most of Polly's professional life, Polly was expected to dress um, closer to um, closer to their assigned gender as a woman. And so, I saw some of these pictures with like Polly Murray and like um, skirt suits and other kind of like you know feminine professional attire for the for the time. And I couldn't just I couldn't help but to realize like just how uncomfortable <laughs> they looked in the clothes that they were wearing. But this is kind of some of the that respectability politics that you were talking about kind of factoring um, into their work. And so um, I know um, today, oftentimes when we're talking about um, how some of these problems are being adjudicated, and once again, you mentioned that we're often focusing on students. And so I'm thinking about some of those um, student affairs kind of um, policy changes that have come about in the past couple of years and and within the last decade that have been designed to address some of these problems. So for example, at some of the leading HBCUs, for example, um, specifically single-sex HBCUs, there has been um, changes to policy to be more accommodating for transgender, non-binary, and intersex students. Um, There has been the uptick in LGBTQ centers um, actually being um, established at HBCU. So these are all really positive developments, but these are developments that mainly um, or primarily um, impact um, students. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the um, developments on the faculty, staff, and administrator end. Yeah. um, So in my research thus far, there aren't any developments, right? Um, And that's what has come through in my work. While the LGBTQ plus centers in some at some HBCUs are being established, those are not cabinet level positions. They often sit within student affairs um, and still potentially based on who is leading that center may determine who and how other uh, employees engage with said center because again, the reason my work 
I wanted to shift the focus from students for just a second, right? Because the faculty, the people who are leading the institution have a responsibility to the students and to each other. When we talk about being in community, right? This sense of, of belonging. So, and that's something in my work that, again, you know, I found very disheartening was what I, well, one of my questions was, well, how do you find community within your respective institution? And from the majority of my participants, the answer was, I don't, because I don't know where people are. It's not something that we talk about. That is disheartening. I mean, right? And that's, and these are our spaces, some that have had a, a LGBTQ center, others that don't, right? So, and it's not as, you know, students are typically more, you know, connected to each other in whatever ways based on the activities and things of that nature. But having employee resource groups for the LGBTQ community at HBCUs, like, you know, where is that? Um, and so many other things that, that are missing. So I'm not, I, I'm not trying to negate, right, you know, like the stuff that, that you were sharing, because yes, there are strides being made, and I'm grateful for those strides as well. My challenge in my work, because I love HBCUs, I, I believe in lifting and shifting our institutions um, in any way that I can, which is why I'm doing this work. We have to continue to contend with what is diversity, equity, and inclusion? How does that manifest at the HBCU? I think, unfortunately, it's mostly been centered around gender, binary gender, and race. Well, it's like we are much more than those components. So when do we really start looking at things at the HBCUs from this lens, right? And, and even though, you know, we talked about uh, Higginbotham, and that work with politics and respectability, something else that I name is when we think about people who go to church or wherever we go, right? If we are in our homes or wheresoever we are, when we leave from one room to the next, that does not mean that our mentality and that our practices have changed because we have left from one room to, to the next. So there's this assertion and this assumption that, oh, well, you know, at the schools, people aren't discriminating. Like, that's not because there's this separation right between church and state. And I said, well, no, you, the, the way that these things show up in covert or overt ways are in the policies, in the practices. Right. I, I remember sharing or talking with with one of my um, participants in my work who discussed that the language in reference to benefits was just, you know, whoever, well, if you are married, but for like domestic partners and using the language of, of queer, et cetera, like that is not within, at their institution, within their employee handbook at all. So there is no inclusion of them. So it's, it's more than just creating a center. What policies and procedures and practices is the institution willing to embed to help hold people accountable so that those same faculty that we talked about earlier don't feel like I may not get tenure if my homophobic uh, chair, dean, whomever, provost knows who I am and thus I'll be out of a job. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I know all of that is is nuanced um, and I hope that I answered, Naomi, the question that you asked. Um, but that's, that's just kind of where I, I wanted to let that at least resonate right so there's not like a lot of moving things that, that are happening here and there across hbcus i wish that i can say something different about that but i can't we appreciate that though that answer um and i'm a graduate of an hbcu although i can't speak to the lgbtq experiences at my small private hbcu in mississippi um i can definitely see and i understand um, that I think that was a great, that's a quotable moment there when you said it's more than creating a center. So as we're looking at um, some of these efforts, um, just kind of seeing how the art institutions, HBCUs and otherwise are being held accountable in that way. Um, how, how much <laughs> is that worth? Uh, is it just for a name or how deep does it go? Um, 
when it comes to um, inclusion for faculty, staff, administrators, and students. Um, and then along these lines, uh, mentioning what you've not noticed as far as developments with strides, do you believe there are HBCU institutions that are making any notable strides on these issues? Um, or other institutions, so non-HBCUs. Are there any institutions that are making notable strides on these challenges with retention, inclusion, um, active engagement in um, spaces for LGBTQ communities and students, staff, faculty, administration, so forth? Um, so, and if so, if you do see any notable strides, um, how can other institutions learn from them? And if not, what lessons do HBCUs need to learn to improve their efforts? Yeah, so that's that's full. Um, <laughs> so I, what I will say is uh, President uh, McCullough Abdullah has been doing, I mean, it's making statements goes a long way. Okay, especially from the president of said, it, it's kind of like the pastor declaring this is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we believe in. This is the charge, and I'm holding y'all accountable to doing it. You get what I'm saying? Right. So right. I, I think about them. I think about Spellman. Yeah, like I said, there are other institutions that that are are doing things, which I, I think is is good, right? For those two who are actually moving forward in that work, um, and moving forward in it unapologetically, because that is also very important as well. This should not be, and as I always talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, it's not a checkbox, it's soul work, S-O-U-L. Yes, yeah. If we do not engage with why people from different um, experiences of life, why their lives truly matter, and that this, how, they, how there should be equitable treatment, we're not doing this work of DEI well. And so when I think about, to your question, what can HBCUs learn from other institutions, Having a chief diversity officer, it may not, they may not be the role, be, be the title rather, it may be the university diversity officer, something of that nature, where the institution has a designated person that knows the nuances, the intersections, and can kind of be in a form of compliance and community building and a culture shifter, because that's what DEI work is, is shifting the culture, right? Um, in every aspect of the institution, hiring these individuals and giving them the autonomy to hold their peers, including the president, accountable if these institutions want to survive. You know, right, right. I think about, for example, the University of South Carolina. I know Naomi, I was talking about that earlier. I loved my time at the University of South Carolina. Besides one instance that I've had as it relates to racism, nevertheless. I engaged with the Office of Multicultural Affairs with uh, Shay Malone, who was the director at the time. Not sure if she's still there, but I, I engaged with her office as an employee of the institution. Right at this PWI, I was able to find community and belonging in the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs and in Trio programs where I worked. Right, so. Being there and having that experience is like, and, and I said, I'm saying that to say, because I, I came to, to USC after I had left an HBCU, and I was like, well, dang, if the HBCU had something like this, I probably would have stayed because I enjoyed the work that I did. I did not enjoy the culture. I did not enjoy the strong politics of respectability, the strong religiosity, the homophobia, the transphobia. It was just a lot, Right. And so I'm, I said all that to say HBCUs, and I named this in my work as well, should engage with having a cabinet level position that focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that person who's hired and those people who are tasked to do the works so have to name that too, because chief diversity officers get burnt out and they quit left and right because they are hired from a stance of tokenization. Or let me hire you to fix all of the institution's problems. No, that's not the role. It's it's a collective effort to shift the culture. So if HR is not going to change their policies, if the faculty senate and the governance are not going to change their policies and practices, not going to change their curriculum to be more inclusive, not creating more courses where students can learn about 
queerness and queer history, black queer history at these HBCUs. Because it's it's not that the that the scholarship is not out there. The culture is just not as conducive to have somebody come in and teach about that. And to be consistent in that respect and be supported, right? So the, these are the things that I'm suggesting HBCUs need to do. Like everybody should be mandated to go through sensitivity training as it relates to the LGBTQIA plus community. Like from the from the board of trustees to every individual contributor to every student, because this is how you shift culture. If there's no training that's available, that's mandatory. Hear me when I say this, mandatory. If we have to take cybersecurity training because it's mandatory, because we don't want no hackers, well, what about the hackers of the soul that's doing damage to these humans that walk through our campuses and, and instead of speaking life, joy, and prosperity to them, they feel like they're being condemned and that they're damnable. Talk about restoration, right? <laughs> Which training is more important? If we had, if we had to, see, to, to, you know, number them. Nevertheless, I talk strong. I'm unapologetic about that. That goes back to my practivist nature. Because in some ways, we have to speak this truth to power so that our HBCUs can become, in the words of Imani Van Zapp, who I love, uh, who's a personality on social media, in order to become stronger and better. Like we, we have to have these conversations and have a strategy and a commitment, a public commitment to what we are going to do to be more inclusive of the LGBTQ community as a whole. So the students, the faculty, the staff, the administrators, et cetera. Thank you so much, Jonathan, again. And we are actually like approaching the end of our hour with you, but it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and to just get such a breadth of historical and contemporary insight into this um, um, issue in higher education and to see, you know, some of the work that's going on right now to um, kind of change it. And so lastly, the last thing we wanted to ask you and leave off with is we've kind of talked about, you know, some of the, um, some of the people who have helped to um, open up the scholarship to these conversations and some of the practitioners at HBCUs. We've talked about some of these historical figures who have also, you know, championed um, this work just through the virtue of their presence. And so we wanted to leave off with asking you, you know, um, as someone who's also, you know, joining this fight, um, how do you see your legacy um, in the future? What kind of legacy do you think you're going to leave on this work moving forward? That's, I don't know. I mean, the, as I go back to the, the song, um, one of my favorites, the, the Circle of Life, as I find my place on this path unwinding, you know, it's the circle of life. So I, I don't know how and where spirit will direct me. What, what I can say is this work that I'm doing with my dissertation has literally never been done before. So this is groundbreaking work. Um, and, and I'm excited to, to be able to do this work, to break this ground. And I plan to continue my scholarship in this area. I have an entire research agenda <laughs> that I would like to 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 fulfill. However, what I what I also say, because I told God, I said, you know, if it be your will for an HBCU to hire me, I would go back and work for an HBCU <laughs> as a cabinet level uh, member to do this work because I do believe in our institutions. My question back to God was, well, God, I don't know if they're ready for a Jonathan Wesley. You know, <laughs> I'm I, like I said, I'm queer in every way. If I choose to come on campus one day and I, I choose to pump through in some hills, baby, I need everybody to be strong. But, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm just I'm just saying right now. But for some of like, what's going you know, but and it's not doing it for for that's my sense of, of expression as a as a person that, like I said, that identifies as queer in every way, right? So I just don't know if HBCUs are ready for me, a radical person like myself, 
to work in their institutions. Um, and, and if it's not, you know, the, the Lord's will for me to do that, to work at one in that type of capacity, then I won't. You know, that's who I believe is the author and finisher of, of my faith. Um, but but what I will say is that I will continue to do the scholarship work and I'll continue to do work within popular culture so that we can continue to have these conversations. I do believe that per my dissertation work and be, it's it, y'all, it's it's buzzing within the HBCUs because mm-hmm. <laughs> when I sent out my call for participants, I reached out to every active HBCU. Now, the challenge of that was because I selected like rent receipt and delivery request. <laughs> so I sent uh, communications to three to five individuals in senior level uh, leadership at, from every active HBCU. And I, as I write in my work, there's nothing worse than being left on red. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, they, they know, they don't know me though. Like, cause I haven't been at all of their institutions, but <clears throat> as they know, I'm committed to the work. And I hope that as they read my dissertation and I continue to put this in front of them in whatever ways that the divine opens up for that to happen, that we will continue to have conversations. But like I said, whether that's at an HBCU or anywhere else, this is the work that my soul is assigned to do while I'm here on the earth. So I'm going to continue to do it. Is it a struggle sometimes? Yes. But it is very meaningful because I know that there are people who want to learn there are people who want to be you know liberated enough to to live in their truth and share as they feel comfortable within the hbcus so that we can truly be competitors with our other institutions so that the, at the end of the day still higher ed is it is a business right, right. so if, if we're not retaining students and retaining stellar you know employees because there's discrimination against sexual orientation and gender identity, that's, I mean, that's a major loss for, for our community. But that HBCUs can't be mad that people don't want to come to the to those institutions and be oppressed. It's just like individuals coming to a faith space knowing that they're going to be oppressed and just, you know, making uh, a relationship w- with their trauma. And so, you know, anyway, I know I, know I said a lot of that, all of that makes sense. So that's what I feel like my contributions will be. I will continue to write. I will continue to publish. I will continue to produce. So I have some producer credit uh, getting behind the screen and having a docu-series or something on a major network um, so that individuals can really see these struggles and we can continue to do the work. Yes. So thank you. Um, everything that you said, all very meaningful um, and important, timely. Um, especially with the renewed interest and attention to HBCUs now. Um, So we thank you. It was such a pleasure getting to know you today, Jonathan. Um, Thank you for being here, taking the time to share some more insight on the subject. Um, Very enlightening. Um, And hopefully this serves as a call to action to HBCU administrators. Um, These standards and systems, maybe we can see some of this progress um, going forward. And hopefully all of this is helpful. Some of the things that you listed out, the challenges and uh, potential remedies for these efforts, more active um, at efforts at HBCUs. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we close out? Yeah. I mean, as I've been talking about this over the past few months, I, I will want to say there's a few more things. I want to try to make them really, really quick. Okay. For those individuals who will listen to this whenever you will hear it, my prayer is that for those who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, if you are wrestling with the who of with the who that you are, know that when God, when the divine created you, that the divine did not make a mistake when God created us. So I really hope that you can sit with that and that as you embrace your own liberation into the 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 uniqueness of who you are that you can be a possibility model to your students, to your family, because somebody else's freedom is tied up to your lived experience. And when you're free enough to tell your story, it will help liberate the generations to come. I will also say for those who are trying to engage in this journey and learning more about LGBTQ plus identities, that the road is a rough one to navigate, to learn and try to 
understand. But what I will say is that for those who desire to be allies or co-conspirators, as Bettina Love has shared in, in her book, um, we, we need your support as well. You may not understand what, how, or why God created us the way, way we did. Sometimes we don't understand it, but what we do know is that we're here. So, and, and we have always been here. Queer people have always existed. This is not anything new. So we would just hope that you all will continue to learn and to grow with us, to form community with us and see that we are more than our sexuality and our gender identities. We are humans with souls and we want to feel like we belong in spaces so that we can do our best work. And to our allies and our co-conspirators, you will help us to be able to become more free than what we already are. So well, I, I leave that. Thank you. I think that's a great place to end. Um, so great. Well, this wraps up this episode of Varying Viewpoints. Thank you again, Jonathan, for joining us. Um, ending on that note, thank you for everything um, that you've shared with us today. Um, and thank you, listeners, uh, for listening. And we look forward to our next episode of Varying Viewpoints and a continuing conversation here on LGBTQ plus student affairs at HBCUs.